You know, sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it doesn't look like you're making progress following Jesus. You think, I started here, and I should go in a more or less straight line here and make some progress. But instead, it looks like you're looping. And you think, wait a minute, I've done this before. You ever had that sense of deja vu? Where you think, wait a minute, I have encountered this situation before. And I did the right thing before. Why do I have to do this again? No explanation comes from heaven. You just have to do it. I've been in situations and I think, oh my goodness, I know what I'm supposed to do here because I learned it the last time. Well, you know, God is going to repeat situations in your life so that you learn to do what's right and you do it every time. You think, well, how many repetitions are we going to need for this? And the answer is, as many as God thinks you need. It's really up to him. Now, in this chapter, 1 Samuel 26, David experiences this deja vu as he just walks with God. He is hunted by King Saul. He's tempted with this same sin of avenging himself and just solving the problem by killing Saul. But he reacts quicker and better. And you know, God is training him in righteousness. This principle also works in reverse. If you don't go God's way and you refuse to go his way, it makes it easier and easier to refuse God and you continue in a way that leads away from God. So you gotta be careful whom you obey. So I'm reading here in, in 1 Samuel 26. It says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hela, opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hechilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, now Saul lay within the camp, and the people encamped all around him. Now we've come to this situation before. King Saul is pursuing David because he feels like David is out to take the kingdom from him. God fired Saul 
He says, he's torn the kingdom away from you. Saul isn't having it. He's staying on the throne and he's chasing David to kill him. And these guys in Ziph, they've come to Saul before and snitched on David and say, hey, he's hiding with us. They're trying to get in good with Saul. And so Saul gets his standing army of 3,000 men and they go out to the wilderness of Ziph and this Hachila, where Saul is, is kind of a rocky terrain and Saul camps on the hill. This is a strong defensive posture. Anyone attacking him would have to run up the hill. And that's a weak position. If you're defending, you run down the hill and it's easier to swing a sword and you got gravity on your side. So anybody who would attack Saul, like he fears from David, would have to actually run uphill and work harder. And then you notice um, in verse five, everybody's going to sleep and Saul is sleeping in the middle of all the other soldiers. He's surrounded by 3,000 soldiers who are camping out. And he's right in the very center. And this is a very strong defensive place. Anybody wanting to get to Saul would have to go through 3,000 guys to get to him. Okay, so Saul is here to kill David. He's not here to expose himself needlessly to danger. Does everybody get that? And so it's really kind of interesting that in the midst of all this excessive defense posture, David decides to defy all that. Look what happens in verse six. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So here's David, and he knows that he's outnumbered five to one. And these guys all want to kill him. And still, 
He asks these two guys that happen to be near him. He goes, which one of you wants to go down with me? And Abishai goes, me, me, I want to go, I want to go. Now, you notice that he is the son of Zeruiah and the brother of Joab. They're going to pop up later on. Zeruiah is David's sister. So Abishai is his nephew. And I guess he's up for it. If David wants to do some risky stuff, Abishai goes, I want to be there. So kind of the guy you want with you. Somebody is up for it. So they go right down into the center of camp. And nobody is awake, not even the sentries. Can you imagine? They tiptoe right up to Saul. And everybody's just sawing logs. And so they have a debate right there, whispering. And Abishai whispers the temptation. He's right there. There's a spear. I pick it up. I shove it through his brain. He's dead. You don't have to do it. I'll do it. And it's over. Never mind the fact that the first noise you make, everybody wakes up and you're all dead, right? You're stuck in the middle of 3,000 wolves who are going to kill you. So that's bad thinking. On just a practical level. But this is a temptation. You could end it all with one stroke. All this running around and he's hounding you and God even said you could do it. You notice it says in verse 8, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. See, somebody made a prophecy about David that God said, I will deliver your enemy into your hand and you can do anything you want to him. And all David's guys take this to mean, you can kill him, you can kill him. God says you can. But that's not what it said. God says, you can do anything you want to him. That's a little bit different, isn't it? God is saying, you can do what you want. And David's men always get this interpretation wrong. They always think, yeah, let's kill him. That's a great idea. But then it conflicts with other parts of God's word that are revealed. And this is a rule when you want to interpret the Bible. You can't interpret it any way you want. Because I can make the Bible say that black is white. Look, on page 62, it says black. Here on page 1000, it says is. And over here on page 1900, it says white. The Bible says black is white. No, it doesn't. You got to read it right. So you got to be careful when you interpret the Bible that you don't just 
Make it say anything you want. Everything has to fit together like a puzzle. There's a right place for every piece, right? So you don't take a piece out of your puzzle and a hammer and go, hey, it fits. Because now Mona Lisa has a mustache. Good luck in there, Mona. Nah, it fits, but you sort of forced it. And that doesn't, that doesn't work. There's a right place. And you know, every time you put the right piece in the right spot, it just goes just like that. No force. No muscling it and bending it to get your, your idea across. You just, that is the right interpretation. So God says, you can do anything to him you want. But what do you really want to do? And David says, I want to do what you want. What do you want, God? And God says, I delight in unchanging mercy. And David says, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll do what pleases you. I will show my enemy unchanging mercy. Now, you know, the first time David did this, it took him a while. He goes up to Saul while Saul is busy doing something else, and he cuts the corner off his robe. Do you remember that? He says, I'm not going to kill him. I, I, I don't think that's right, but I'll just cut the corner off his robe. And then he goes, oh, that's not right either. Why is it not right? Because it sends the wrong message. Look what happened when you got close to me. You know, it could be worse next time. Watch out because I'm dangerous. And he realizes, whoa, I'm sending the wrong message. I'm sending the message that I'm about to kill you and that's why he's hunting me in the first place. I don't want to send him that message. I want to send him this message. I am not going to lift my hand against you. You are the Lord's anointed. I respect you. And I'm going to show you mercy. I am not your enemy. And Saul from that just said, you're right. You're right. And he went home. Same situation now. Saul's at his mercy. He's sawing logs. He would never see it coming. And Abishai is right there to say, hey, kill him now, kill him now, kill him now. But David's been through this. He goes, no, right off the bat. Doesn't have to even think about it. He knows. You don't do this. Nobody can touch the anointed of God and be blameless. So he's faster to just say, cool your jets, man. We're not going to do this. That's great. I'm going to show him the love of God and be merciful to him, but let's make a point. Let's take his spear. Let's take his jug of water. And let's get out of here. 
before we step on a twig. You know how that one works. And everybody's eyes go away. And they're dead. I cannot believe the audacity of David to actually walk down into camp, hold a little debate as they whisper, well, I think we ought to kill him. Well, I think we ought to not kill him. And they get out of camp. So it says they, they go over to a valley. Let's, let's pick it up here. Verse 13. It says, now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who was like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So here's David and Abishai, and they get away. They're across the valley up on a hill, and he starts yelling at them. Hey, Abner, you bonehead. What are you doing? You're the best guy in Israel, aren't you? What's you guys are falling down on the job. Every one of you deserves to die. He's just razzing them. And Abner, you know, is, who, who are you? You know? Is, Abner. Man, you need to clean up your act. Somebody came in to kill the king, and you were fast asleep, buddy. He's really kind of enjoying this. And then Saul hears, verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So David is so reasonable. And Saul hears his voice and he says, he's done it again. He has come close to me and he has let me live. And all of this comes crashing down on his head. Just how bad it is what he's doing. What a clonk he is. He wouldn't use that word. 
But it's like he's caught and he's doing something that is so unreasonable and he's been shown so much mercy and he goes, wow, he's done it to me again. And David is reasonable. He says, look, if God is behind this, let's offer a sacrifice. Let's wipe this out before the Lord. If people are putting you up to this, they're cursed because they're driving me out from Israel. They're making me go outside the country and practically become an idolater. What is this? But he says, I haven't done anything to you. There is no problem here. And you're, you're looking for a flea. I'm really not a threat to you. And in verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Now you'd think that great things are happening here. We're making progress. But the reality is no progress has been made. And it's crazy Because Saul says flat out in verse 21, I have sinned. You think, well, that's good. That's a great start. Yeah, but he said that the last time too. And he says, I've played the fool and erred exceedingly. Okay, that's nice. David gives back the king's spear and the jug. And he says, you know, I valued your life today. And somebody said, put him to death. And I said, no. So let the Lord value my life like that. Let him take care of me when nobody else will. And let him deliver me from everything. And Saul blesses David. May you be blessed, my son David. That sounds hopeful, doesn't it? But then it says David goes on his way. And that means back out into the wilderness and Saul returned to his place. That means he goes back to his throne. So the net result of this whole scene here is zero, nothing. And here's what's going on. 
there's a principle here. Whatever you yield to, that is your master. And the more you submit, the more that becomes your way. Be careful what you obey. Here's David on the one hand, and he's walking in God's ways, and he's showing mercy when it would be easier not to. You know, you take a sword, you go whack, you've just killed your problem. That would be easy. And back then, wouldn't be a big deal at all. Happens all the time. But because David has committed to go God's way, he instead goes God's way and shows mercy and lets him live. All right? David is practicing mercy. He's practicing patience and peace and love. And he's getting better at it. It's coming quicker, faster. This is a principle. You stick to it. That's the way he's going. But you know, Saul is practicing his way. And it's getting easier and easier for him to go his way away from God. He's practicing murder. Saul came out with 3,000 men to kill David and no other reason. So you don't mobilize 3,000 men just to kind of go around the countryside and point out pretty trees and rocks and stuff. It's like, I'm here to kill. He's sinning against God. He's premeditating murder. He's also practicing not repenting. Now, you know, Saul says it was a mistake. Was it a mistake? You make a mistake when you don't have enough wisdom, when you don't have enough information, and you make a bad decision. Bloop. He says, I have been a fool. Well, a fool is somebody who is deficient in understanding and knowledge. Did he goof and make a huge mistake? Unintentionally? No. He came out with 3,000 men to kill. That was not a mistake. So, you know, he's kind of shying back from saying, I'm sinning radically against God, and I'm stubborn, and I'm disobedient. He's kind of going, oops. And that's lame. That's lame. He's not really repenting. And Samuel is the one who said disobedience and stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft, seeking unclean power from a source not God. So Saul is doing something radically wicked here, and he calls it a mistake. Oops. He's practicing not repenting. And he's also practicing taking mercy for granted. I don't think anybody on earth would have shown Saul 
mercy like David showed Saul. Imagine finding out that instead of being killed, you were shown mercy and you're shown how far off track you are and you just walk away from it. You know, what he should have said was something like, you know, God, this is twice now and I am extremely lucky to be alive and I don't want to do this anymore. I'll get off the throne. If you just keep me alive and show me your ways, other than that, it's just amazing mercy. Thank you, God. Something like that. But instead, he goes back to his throne to stay king when God fired him, and it's like he's walking away from mercy. So Saul is really persevering in getting his own way. And this is the horrible thing about getting your own way. You will get it. But it's not God's way. So, the more he is stubborn and goes for his own way, the easier it is for him to stay in his own way going away and further and further and further from God. This is not going to end well. So here's the point. Be careful whom you obey. Now, for those who have been born again, who have received Jesus, the Bible says he has set us free from sin and from death. But it doesn't mean that we're free agents and we can do anything we want. This is something we have to learn. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And what he's saying is, the way of life for a Christian is to continually submit your life to God for obedience. Now, the way you do this is all the time. And it's kind of conscious at the beginning. You kind of have to, come on. Remember who we are, what we're doing. We're going to submit to Jesus. What do you want? But it is a conscious thing. It's, uh, it's not natural. Because 
all of our default mode of operation is just, I want to do what I want to do. And unconsciously, we sin like crazy. In fact, even as a Christian, you will notice this, that you will catch yourself doing something you know is wrong. Right in the middle of it. You go, whoop, this isn't good. Oh my goodness. Because it's so natural. It's so easy. That's who you are. And you have to stop it and say, wow, God, help me right now. And wash me and cleanse me. And then you continue submitting yourself to God. This is how you live. And, you know, it has to be conscious because it's so easy to unconsciously just do your own thing and don't think about it. So you want to say, okay, here I am. Lord Jesus, will you please fill me with your Holy Spirit? Because as he dwells in you, then he produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You think, yeah, that'd be fun. And you know, as we're filled by the Holy Spirit and these things come out of our lives, we treat everybody with love, patience, self-control, so you're not driving down the street and somebody makes a skillful move and you want to say, you bonghead. You go, mm, shouldn't actually do that. Even though you want to. My father used to talk to Ms. Jones all the time. Some car would do an act and he would go, thanks a lot, Ms. Jones. He didn't know who it was. But he's got this thing going. He just went, you know. So natural. I'm such a sweet guy, too. But then I can just say, what was that? Which, which one of my fingers do I use to flip the guy off? I, I forgot one time. And before I could figure out which finger it was, he was gone. Senior moment. Sorry, pal. <laughs> I forgot how to be rude and vulgar. How could I ever do that? But I wanted to be rude and vulgar. Oh. Well, here we are. We want to say, Lord, will you please dwell in me richly? Will you please overflow my life to other people? That's what you want to do. Now, you'll notice, though, that if you do obey sin, which is a funny kind of a concept, but you obey it, it becomes easier the next time. And you find yourself in this thing where you're actually a slave of sin and you want to do what's right. And you can't. And it's frustrating and it's embarrassing. But here's what you do. 
When you find yourself doing what you know is wrong, you stop right there and you say, okay, here I am. I'm a sinner and you came to save sinners and I'm one. And please work in my life right now because that was a sin. What you don't want to say is, oh my, what a bloop I made there. Oops. Because that's just covering it up lightly. What you want to do is repent hard and just say, that was not acceptable. That was a sin. I am so wrong. And you humble yourself before God and the Bible says, he will lift you up. And he will communicate to you, you're good now, let's go, let's keep going. And you keep following Jesus in this salvation. Now here's something I found. When you find yourself getting into the same sin over and over, what is that thing that you ought to be doing that you're not doing because you're sinning? Think about that. A lot of times, it's, I don't want to do this, so I'll just do something else, and there I am sinning. Figure out what it is that you ought to be doing, that you're not doing, and say, okay, God, I need to do this. And then you ask, okay, will you please bring that death of the Lord Jesus into my life? And will you also bring the resurrection of the Lord Jesus into my life and enable me to do this thing that you want me to do? That's how you live. So you ought to be concerned about not going God's way. You ought to be concerned about sin. And if you're not concerned about sin in your life, it points to the fact that you may not be born again. You know, just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're born again, that you're right with God. A lot of people go to church that aren't right with God. So, you have to consider, am I saved? Am I born again of the Holy Spirit? Have I received Jesus? Because if you haven't received Jesus, then you're still dead in your sins. And you need to receive Jesus. Because only he can take away your sins. Now, if you are born again, you will have a very strange experience. Is that you will see sin in your life all the time. And you can get discouraged about this. You say, man, I caught he. I thought I was doing God a favor when I received Jesus. And now I look more and more like a liability all the time. It looks like I only want my way. I don't want to do anything that God wants me to do. You think, wow, what am I going to do? 
How am I going to make it to heaven when I'm just this, I don't want to do this. And boy, watch out if you're a pastor. You're supposed to be into this. But I've noticed it with myself. Have you guys also noticed this? I will not call for hands. I want to direct your attention to verse 24 again. He's, David says, let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Do you know that your life is highly valued by God? And even to those who have not received Jesus, this is still true, that God loves you with everlasting love. That means his love never started for you. He has always loved you and he will always love you. So your life is valuable before God. And he is going to deliver you from all distress. You know, you receive Jesus that means he's with you. You're not on your own. He doesn't expect you to figure it out and battle and duke out your way to heaven. <laughs> I made it, I think. Did I make it? <laughs> no? Uh-oh. No, he is going to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. You're not the toughest person he's ever saved. He's saved lots tougher people than you. You are not a problem for God. And so God is not going to stop working in you until you are glorified and blameless. Glorified and blameless. Now, it gets better as you walk with Jesus and you submit to this submitting to him. And you think, no, it's getting harder. In fact, it's getting impossible. But Jesus specializes in doing impossible things. And he works in you so that you do yield to him in obedience. That's called grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are the one who's in charge of our lives. That you are the Lord and we can't knock you off your throne. Thank you that you know our situation. You know the troubles that we face, the sins that we deal with. We thank you for a solution. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. 
that all of your wrath would be poured out on him. Thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead to show that you accepted his sacrifice. And thank you that the one who receives him receives forgiveness. And I pray that you would draw all of us closer to Jesus and away from our own way. We don't want to be lost anymore. We don't want to be out in the dark. We want to know you. And we want to know forgiveness and purity and light and hope. So do that for us. Teach us how to live with you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.